Let's begin as we open up our Bibles to Psalm 139. That's going to be our reading today, and I want to encourage you to open it up. So if you're here in person, you have a Bible in front of you, no excuse. If you don't own a Bible, take the one in front of you home. That's our gift to you. And if you're at home, go find the Bible that you probably own, maybe dust it off if it hasn't been open for a while, and turn to Psalm 139 as we watch this short video that outlines for us verses 1 through 12. Let's watch. Oh, Lord. You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. There's this common phenomenon that I'm sure a lot of us can relate to uh, when we scroll through social media on our phones these days. Uh, maybe you're having a conversation with your spouse or your parent or your roommate about a trip that you really would like to take or a car that you would love to buy. And the conversation ends and what we inevitably do, we pull out our phone and we scroll through Instagram or Snapchat or Facebook and you see on your feed an advertisement for the same thing you were just talking about wanting to buy. Has anybody experienced this? Show of hands, right? Little creepy, right? I, I shared this joke at the first service. I may have shared it with you before not that long ago, so I forgive me if it's true, but it's a funny joke in my opinion. It's about a husband. He was, he was walking around the house, and he was talking very quietly. And his, his wife said, why are you talking so quietly? And he said, well, because I'm afraid that Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook are listening. And as he said it out loud, he realized how ridiculous it sounded. And so he laughed. <laughs> His wife laughed. Alexa laughed. Suri laughed. The refrigerator laughed. Everybody thought it was really funny. Okay, maybe I'm the only one who thought that the joke was funny, but you get the point. Remember, remember when we used to leave our TVs on? just to not feel alone. Maybe some people still do. I, I did this when I was in, in college and I lived alone. And, and, and I think about that and I think, you know, with the way the technology has gone, that's kind of gotten a little weird because it, it's, it's one thing to feel like you're not alone, but it's a whole other thing to feel like you're being listened to. <laughs> Isn't it? And if you research this, and you'll, you'll find that, that target advertising, like social media, for example, like if you find out why they do what they do, they'll tell you that, that they're trying to help us. 
that they're trying to deliver content to us that is more relevant. And, and they might not be listening to the conversation you're having on the couch at night with your spouse, but they are watching what you're searching on Google. And they are tracking the location of your phone at all times. And we don't leave anywhere without our phones. So many people don't even go to the bathroom without bringing their phone. And so essentially they know where you go and when. And even when it comes to listening to our voices, I mean, haven't we invited that into our lives too? Like how many of you here own a smart speaker? Like an Alexa show of hands. And I recognize that by saying Alexa, I just activated everyone who is watching us online right now. I was practicing my sermon at home out loud, and I have one on my desk, and it literally started talking to me while I was practicing this sermon, which is a little creepy, right? But we've welcomed it. We've invited this into our lives. We've paid money for these devices, and we've done it because there's a fine line between the convenience and the comfort that we want and this violation of privacy that we feel. And it's a tension because we want both. I want to be able to control the lights in my house and order a pizza without lifting a finger. But I, I really don't like the idea of my smart speaker listening to me when I'm yelling at my kids or when I'm arguing with my wife. Because I later realized that if I listen to the recording, I'm going to know that I was wrong. <laughs> and I was thinking about this and how connected we are. And I thought, you know, how much of this could also be said about our relationship with God? <laughs> I mean, think about it, right? Like, like you're here, I'm here. On some level, we all want God in our lives. We've paid to be here. Not admission. We don't charge admission. But you're, you're paying with your time. You could be doing all sorts of different things and, and be in different places, whether you're here in person or you're joining us online. Maybe you're giving offerings to God. Maybe you volunteer your time. And so the question that I want to ask us and the question I think our scripture reading today is asking us is how different is our relationship with God than our relationship with our devices? Because as... Our reading shows us today God is literally everywhere, just like our phones. That, 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 that God is always with us, and that is wildly convenient. That means you can talk to God wherever you go, wherever you might be. You always have his presence, and that's comforting. But he's also always there, not just in your greatest moments of strength, but also in your darkest moments of weakness. And it reminds me of a quote I read some years ago by Pastor Tim Keller. I quote him a lot. Um, he wrote this about uh, marriage and the meaning of marriage. He said this. He said, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense. It humbles us out of our self-righteousness. And it fortifies us for any difficulty that life can throw at us. And I think about that, and I think about the reason why these smart devices probably rub us the wrong way. I think at the end of the day, it's because we know that whoever it is that's listening to this data, they don't love us, right? 
That's not what this relationship is about. And instinctively, we don't trust anybody with our whole selves that we know does not love us. And that's natural. We shouldn't. It's actually dangerous to do otherwise. It's, it's why marriage and other close relationships, friends and family and parenting and all of that, it's why those are so important, but it's also why they can be so difficult because the truth is you could have the best relationship with someone, right? You could have the best marriage and healthiest marriage in the world, but even the most healthy of marriages do not allow you to be fully known and fully loved because no matter how long, how many years you're married to your spouse, how many days you spend together, your spouse cannot hear your thoughts. And some of you are like, it's a good thing too, <laughs> right? Probably wouldn't be so good if they could. God can hear those. God can hear what you're thinking. Your spouse might be able to pick up your voice in a crowded room, but God can complete your sentences. You and your loved ones can be miles apart, but there is no place you can hide from the presence of God. And that's the crux of the reading that we're getting into today, Psalm 139. And, and so I want to read it again, and I want to read it through it a little bit sl more slowly. It's written by David, King David, and it begins with verse 1. This is a prayer, this is a song, this is coming out of his heart to God. He says this, he says, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. Our devices. Hear our voices. God hears our thoughts. Verse 3, you discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before you lay, it on, you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Why don't you say those last words with me? Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. And I want to I stop on that passage right there because we often talk about God as all-knowing, right? It's, it's, it's essentially an assumption if you believe in God, that God is all-knowing, that God has more knowledge and understanding about the universe than you and I ever will. It's Isaiah 55, right, where, where we read, my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways. This is God. But this verse is a little bit different. Because what this verse says is that David is saying that God knows more about you than you know about yourself. That there are things about you that God knows that, that you haven't even thought of yet. That is, God has searched us and knows us and perceives our going and our coming and hears our thoughts and completes our words. All of this leads to a knowledge of ourselves that is too wonderful for you to even know about you. And I say that and I think, man, sometimes that just doesn't feel fair, does it? I mean, don't you have questions about your circumstances in your life and the way in which you're wired that you just wish you could know? Don't you wish God would tell you what's coming next sometimes? Does anybody else struggle with that? It's, it's the existential crisis that Job is facing. We studied it two weeks ago, right? He, he, he goes through this, this horrible time of despair and destruction in his life, and he cries out to God, why? 
And ultimately, his question is that he wants to understand this unexplainable circumstance that has come upon him. And eventually, God answers the question, but it's not in an answer to the question. It says that, that God says to Job, this is beyond your ability to comprehend. God basically says, you couldn't possibly understand even if I told you. He compares the understanding of Job and his circumstances to trying to comprehend how God hung every star in the sky. You are not capable of understanding these things. And, and that's a hard truth. But that truth, friends, is probably, I was thinking about it, the most important reason that I am still a Christian today, all these years later. I have more questions, personally. I have more questions now than I thought that I had answers back when I was 17 and I gave my life to Jesus. I have more questions now. And, and where I have grown in most of the 19 years following Jesus that I have followed him over these last 19 years, where I have grown has not been in my understanding of God and the answers to the questions that I have. And I've even gone to graduate school to learn about God, and I still have so many questions. But the place that I have grown the most is in following, in following Jesus is not in what I know. It is in the growing realization that God knows more about my life and my circumstances than I ever will. And, and I don't know about you, but the more I live, the more I need to know that that's true. That the things that I'm never going to understand on this side of heaven, there's got to be an answer. There's got to be a reason. There's got to be a purpose. There's got to be hope. I have to know that. And I was thinking about it this month. This month marks five years since we said goodbye uh, to the first two children that, that Alyssa, my wife, and I, and our, our, two, our, our oldest two boys had the privilege of loving and inviting into our homes through foster care and inviting into our, our church. I actually was thinking about it this morning, and she was at the first service. I've got a, a picture here of, of Darlene Creason. She was singing this morning, and um, it was given to me by Betty Rux, who took the picture, and they were both in our traditional service. And, and this is our little girl who is with us for a year and a half. And she and her brother came uh, to live with us through foster care. And I'll never forget, this five years ago this month, it was on the 10th, I believe, uh, that they went home. And so it was like six, six and a half years ago when they came to us. And I'll never forget, uh, I got a text while I was sitting in a church council meeting. We're right out there in that welcome area. And we were looking at the financials. I remember that. And I remember getting the text, and I wanted to be discreet. I didn't want to be rude, and so I'm looking at my phone under the table. And, and it's from Alyssa, and, and she sent me a text, and she said, I just got a call from the foster care agency. They have a 17-month-old boy and a 4-month-old girl from Milwaukee that need a place to go. I know we told them that we were only open to taking one child, but I said yes, and they'll be here in an hour. <laughs> I have no clue what was on the agenda for the council meeting for the rest of that night. I don't remember that at all. But I do remember that that night began one of the most difficult and joyful seasons of our lives. And I say difficult because there's no way around how difficult it was. We had, our oldest son was six. And so we went from, from a six and a four-year-old, two kids on six and under, to having four kids in our home, six and under. And for a year and a half, we grew to love these children. 
to love their mother who worked so hard to bring them back home, to love their older sisters that were not able to be with them, with us, but were in other places during that terribly difficult season in their life. And it's five years ago this month that they were reunited with their biological family. But as they were reunited with them, I recognized that, that they also left as a forever part of our family, our church, our circle of relationships. And so I was in counseling at the time. I needed counseling just to be able to process this. And, and my counselor said to me that what's so hard about a transition like this is that, that you have loved these two children and now they are going off into the world and you have no idea where they're going to go. And you have no control over protecting them. And your role in this short season, what you signed up for was to protect them. And now you have to let them go maybe forever and you have no control over any of that. And that was hard to process. And it brought me back to the first couple of weeks and months that they were with us. The, the older boy, the 17-month-old, he was terrified of me. And he was terrified of me because he had some men in his life that had not treated him and the people he loved well. And so it got to the point where eventually he started to warm up to Alyssa and he started to warm up to our, our, our boys. Um, but whenever I would come in the room, he would shut down. And so I would get home from, from work and I would walk in and I would literally, there's a little wall in our laundry room where I could peek around and I'd hear him laughing and I'd hear them playing. And I would peek around and I would just spy on him because, because I wanted to see him. I wanted to see him in his true colors. I wanted to see his personality. And so I'd watch him and then I'd walk in and bam, he'd shut down the rest of the night. He was almost emotionless. And so, so, so one night I got home and that happened and I, I told Alyssa, I said, you know, he and I need to bond. And so I'm going to take him over to Walgreens, which is right down the road from our house. And, and I'm going to go to the, you know, the toy impulse aisle. And I'm going to buy him a stuffed animal. Whatever he wants. He gets to pick it. He, just him and I, we're going to go. And so he tolerated me, didn't freak out. I put him in the car. I brought him there. But he was just silent. And we got to that aisle, and I said, you can pick out whatever you want. And he didn't want to pick out anything, right? This is a, a year-and-a-half-year-old, right? And here's toys. He doesn't, he doesn't give me any indication. And so I picked out what I would have picked, which was this teddy bear, or sorry, this, this um, puppy dog. Because I thought it was really cute, and, and, and I thought it was the best thing there. And so I picked it up, and, and I gave it to him, and he didn't want it. And so I carried it, and I paid for it, and I brought it home. And slowly but surely, he went from not wanting anything to do with this to tolerating it. And then he went from tolerating it to carrying it around everywhere he went. And then he went from carrying it around everywhere he went to sucking on its nose, which was disgusting, <laughs> And I looked at the tag, and it wasn't machine washable. <laughs> and so we decided to go buy him a different kind of puppy. It's actually the kind of puppy we had for our older boys that you can wash in the washing machine. And so, so we went and bought him one of those, and, and we switched it out. And, and we were really wondering, is he going to be upset? Because you know how kids get, right, with their security blankets and their toys. And so we thought, is he going to be upset? But to be honest, and I asked Alyssa again this week, I said, do you remember the transition? And, and neither one of us can remember. We don't think he cared at all. And it wasn't because the new puppy was better than the old puppy. It was better than the old puppy. But I think the reason why is because he didn't need it anymore. He didn't need it anymore. He knew at that point that, that he was loved. 
That we loved him and he loved us. He knew that we knew him and he knew us. And so he left five years ago and we sent him home with the new puppy. And I keep the old one in my office at home to remind me of what I was desperately trying to teach him six years ago. And that is that his heavenly father is always with him. And now I pray that, but I pray that not just for him, I pray it for me because I have to know that God is with him or I never could have let him go. I have to believe that God is going before him. And frankly, I have to believe that God is going before me as well. That God is going before me and that I cannot run away from him and neither can these children and neither can you. Verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. And I think about it and I think there's, got, there's a transition in our faith. And I think all of us go through this. And, and if you haven't gone through it, there's going to come a point where you are going to go through it. And I think we're always kind of going through it in, in different ways. But it's a transition in the faith where we go from placing all of our hope and trust in answers to questions to going to a place where we find peace and the love of a God who is with us always. A God who knows things about us that are too wonderful for us to even know about ourselves. And so that's what we see as we continue in verse 7. David says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light becomes night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The light will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. David says here that not only is God everywhere we go and everywhere our loved ones go, but that even when we think we're hiding from him, he's still with us. And it reminds me of playing hide-and-seek with my kids when they're little. Right now it's Sophie and Carlos. They're three and four. And they love playing hide-and-seek. Every day they want to play hide-and-seek all the time. And, and so we were playing. Just yesterday we were playing it. And we play it like you probably play hide-and-seek, right? I close my eyes and I count to ten. And I don't peek. I really don't peek. And they go scurry off. And they go find a hiding place. But, but don't, don't say anything to them. I know they're down in Sunday school. So hopefully they can't hear me. But there's a little secret. It doesn't matter where they hide. I always know where to look. I always know where to look. Now, why do I always know where to look? A couple of things. We have older kids, and our house is not that big. And so there's only so many places to hide. And I know all the places to hide. And so it doesn't matter how clever they think they are. I always know. I still pretend, right? Where are you? You know, you do that whole thing, but, but it's just the game, right? I know exactly where they are. I can always find them. And what David is saying about God is God can always find you too. It's easier for God to find you in the universe than it is for me to find my kid under a bed or in a closet. God knows where you hide, and chances are he knows because there's probably been other people that have hidden those same places too. You might think you can hide in the dark, but you cannot hide from a God who himself is light. 
And not only does he know where you go, because he knows the hiding places, he knows you. He knows where you like to go to hide because he knows who you are and how you were made. Verse 13, he says, you were created. You created my inmost being, God. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days were ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. These are words that I pray over and over again. I've prayed them with so many of you when you're facing health challenges or a job loss or a divorce or, or a wayward child. God has a book. And in that book is written every day of your life, every minute, every millisecond. And it's not because he's causing every single challenge we face. We do a really good job doing that on our own. But it's because he knows and he knows what's coming. And because he knows what's coming, he knows exactly how to bring hope to every situation we face. God is never, ever, ever surprised by what we're experiencing. Verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. The bottom line is that we have a God that we cannot comprehend and we also have a God that we cannot lose. We have a God that we cannot comprehend and a God that we cannot lose. And the rest of Psalm 139 shows us that there's two different ways in which we can live out that truth in our lives. Do we want to thrive in the light of God's infinite knowledge of everything about us? Like a, a butterfly comes out of the darkness of a, of a cocoon, right? right? It comes out and spreads its wings and it's able to live in the fullness of the way in which it was created. That's one way that we can live in the, in, in the, the heart and the light of this truth. But the other way that we can live is those creepy crawly bugs that live underneath stones. Have you ever picked up a big stone out of the ground, right, that's been sitting there for a while and you got all those bugs that live underneath? What do they end up doing? Anybody? They run away, right? They scurry away. They look back for the dark. The ones that scamper away from the light are the ones that the psalmist takes a dark turn and describes it's a beautiful psalm and then you get to verse 19 and you're like whoa what's going on here and, and here's what it says he says if only you god would slay the wicked away from me you who are bloodthirsty they speak of you with evil intent your adversaries god misuse your name do i not hate those who hate you lord and abhor those who are in rebellion against you i have nothing but hatred for them i count them my enemies. David is talking about people who hate God. In a little context here, what would have been normal at the time of David is if you were going to pledge allegiance to a king or some kind of a ruler in your life, what you would say to them is your enemies are my enemies. And we get that, right? Like if somebody's an enemy of my child, right? I don't even need to know the circumstances. If you're an enemy of my kid, you're an enemy of me. And so same thing is true here. He says that, that if anybody in the world hates God, I hate them. And the question I have to ask is how could you possibly hate God? How could you hate a God that knows you? 
And the truth is, if you've been living in darkness for a long time, then the light, as good as it might be, can still knock you off your feet. I think about when we first moved to, to our home here in Elkhorn. The previous owners, they had installed lights, um, complete light-blocking shades in all of the bedroom windows. And it was really great for sleeping, right, or sleeping in or or taking a nap, but the thing that I didn't like about them and why we ended up taking them all down eventually is that unlike blinds, blinds you can kind of slowly open up during the morning hours, right? But unlike blinds, shades are all or nothing. They're either all up or they're all down, and the light is blinding. Even beautiful days, bright sunshine in the morning can be painful to your eyes if you've just spent the last eight hours sitting in a dark room. And so that's what he's talking about here. And it, and it brings me to the story of the prodigal son. You've heard the story of the prodigal son, right? Probably one of the most well-known stories in the Bible. It's in Luke 15. Jesus tells it. It's a parable. And it's about a father who has two sons. And the younger son asks his father for his share of the inheritance, which basically is like saying to dad, I wish you were dead because I just want your money. And so actually, why don't you give it to me now? And, and what's even crazier than that is that the father just gives it to him. <laughs> he writes him a check. He transfers it into his account. And then the son goes off. And it says he squanders it in wild living. And this is an upright family and an upright father who's taught his kids a certain way to live. And so if all of this isn't wildly offensive enough, what you see here is he takes his father's money, wishes his father's dead, goes, runs off, and then ends up using his father's money to live the opposite life his father has taught him to live in all of the days that he has raised him as his son. It's like the epitome of disrespect. And eventually, Jesus says that the young son runs out of money, and he goes and finds a job feeding pigs. And he eats what pigs eat, and he's Jewish. And so that makes him unclean by Jewish law. And, and it just adds to the fact that he is living in the darkest of dark, and he has no other choice but to crawl back to his father. He's starving. He is shamed in his family and his faith, and he literally has nowhere else to turn. And so he crawls back home and he thinks about how am I going to beg to be a servant on the family farm? I'm not going to be a son, but I'd like to be a servant. Why is he not going to be a son? Because the only way that he could be a son again would be for someone to pay the price to pay back what he had lost from his father. And he knows that he'll never be able to afford to do that. So he's just hoping not to die. And so he crawls back to his dad. And you know the way the story ends. Verse 20. Jesus said that, that he arose and came to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw the son and felt compassion. And ran and embraced and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they begin to celebrate, and it's a powerful story, isn't it? But why is it powerful? It's not because the father welcomes the son. The reason the story is powerful is because he knows where his son has been. 
He's been watching the entire time. He knows what his son has done. He is well aware of where his son has gone and he still waits and runs to him while he was a long way off and welcomes him home. Just just contrast it to how the story could have gone if the way Jesus told it was that, that he got, he hacked into his dad's 401k account and he transferred thousands of dollars into his checking and then he went off and he, and he bought a whole bunch of stuff and he came home and the dad didn't even know about it yet because he didn't check, right? Would this story mean anything at all? Would this story mean as much if it was like a Hallmark Christmas movie and, and, and the son is coming home after being away in college and, and he comes home, it's a few days early and celebrates and, and comes and surprises dad. He hasn't done anything wrong, but he's been gone and they embrace each other. Those are fun stories, right? But that's not this story. That's not this story. The reason this story is so moving is because he welcomes him back knowing exactly where he's been. And the reason the story is so moving is because the story isn't just about a son that lived a long time ago. The story is also about you. And it's about me. And it's about a heavenly father who loves us and knows us. A heavenly father who has paid the price of the inheritance that we have all squandered in our sin by dying on the cross so that we too can come home into the light no matter what darkness we've ever been in before. David knows this, and that's why he ends his psalm by saying these words. He says, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way of everlasting. And so I want to lead us now in a prayer that invites God to do the same thing David invites God to do all those thousands of years later, that he might do the same in us. Would you join me now as we pray? Lord God, it is terrifying, if we're honest, to come before you and to pray, search me, God, know my heart, test me, know my anxious thoughts, see if there is any offensive way in me. That is a difficult prayer to pray. It seems downright impossible, and it is. Unless we have faith in a God who we know already knows all things. Who we know has been with us since the very beginning of time. A God who we know has knit us together in our mother's womb. I find it fascinating when I'm in prayer to thank God that you knew who I was. And you knew the mistakes that I would make before I was even conceived. That every day is written in your book. And 2,000 years ago, you sent your son to pay the price that I could never pay. To pay back the inheritance that I would inevitably squander. That I might be able to come before you and pray with even more confidence than David came before you to pray. Because as we ask you to search our hearts and know our anxious thoughts... And as we ask you to find the places in which we have been offensive to you and to others, the dark places that we have gone and hid from you, we ask you to come into those places as a father that we know loves us. A father that we know has not just always been with us, but promises to always be with us. 
A father that knows where we've been and yet has been looking down the driveway and watching and waiting to run and embrace us as sons and daughters of a king. How can we hate a God like that? And so help us to love you. Help us to love you as we learn the way in which you love us. And help our faith to transition from being invested in understanding things that we will never be able to comprehend to a faith that reminds us that in the places we don't know where to go and we don't understand that you are with us always. And that that promise is true not just for us, but for those we love. I was talking with